Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, Michelle Ross and I look back on 2019 and on what we got wrong. You know, you had this new class of Democrats being sworn in. It was young, multiracial, a lot of women. And you just look at what's happened. Then, we're taking your calls about New Year's resolutions, the political kind. I'm a bit of a Michelle, but I think I need to get to know some more Rosses. And finally, a recommendation. There's all of these different pieces, and ultimately it comes together with this puzzle box clarity, and it's just incredibly satisfying. The new year is fast approaching, and we are going to take a moment now to reflect on 2019. In recent years, a modest journalistic tradition has sprung up. Some columnists, including you, Ross, write year-end pieces looking back on what they got wrong and what they've learned from it. It's known as pundit accountability, and we're going to subject ourselves to it today. Are you ready for some self-flagellation, Michelle and Ross? Let's go. I mean, always. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll go first. Uh, In January, I wrote a column called Run, Joe, Run, in which I urged Joe Biden to enter the presidential campaign, um, which he did. Uh, I'm not saying he did it because of me, obviously. But my basic case was that uh, Democrats had made a big mistake in 2016 by trying to clear the field and and effectively decide the nomination in advance for Hillary Clinton. And that uh, I think the way to find out who's the best candidate is to hold a primary campaign. I still think that, actually. Get a big, diverse field, let them fight it out see who emerges and see who should take on the other party's nominee. Um, And in Biden's case, I specifically thought he should run because he wasn't like any other candidate. His experience, his apparent connection to working class voters, both white and black, by the way. Um, I added that I didn't know whether he would win and that I didn't even know if I'd be rooting for him. But I thought he made the field a lot stronger because he wasn't like any other candidate. And I guess there's still a chance that it's all going to work out. Maybe he'll win the nomination and thump Trump. But I've also come to understand there was a big downside that I just didn't adequately foresee, which is that Biden had such a large name recognition and good early polling numbers and support among the establishment that he scared away some really good potential candidates like Mitch Landry of New Orleans. And among the candidates who did run, Biden sort of boxed them out. Steve Bullock, Amy Klobuchar. And so I guess I'm now worried that he is this sort of weak Goliath who is preventing other strong candidates from emerging, but might not be that strong himself. And with that, Michelle, you are invited to pile on. I obviously didn't want Biden to run because I sort of saw him as, you know, yesterday's man. I saw him as having a record full of, you know, things that he would have to defend from the vote for the Iraq war to the Clarence Thomas hearings and his treatment of Anita Hill. But it's not like I anticipated his, you know, frailty and just his the fact that he just seems very, very old. Um, I'm not sure anybody could have foreseen that. 
I appreciate that generous response, Michelle. I mean, it's it's interesting, David, because my I mean, I got, you know, many, many things wrong this year as usual. But um, my choice was also about Biden. And it's I think it overlaps in certain ways with with your take. But I, I wrote a column in April called The Real Joe Biden Decision, which basically is when he was deciding to run. And I was saying the real choice, the most important choice isn't whether he runs, but whether he runs trying to constantly adapt himself to his changed party um, ideologically or whether he runs against the emerging progressive consensus and makes himself sort of a tribune of um, resistance to it. And my take then was basically that the first option, if he sort of just tries to be, you know, woke Joe Biden, um, he'll look ridiculous and his candidacy will fall apart. If he runs against the consensus of the party, then he will sort of consolidate support but maybe make the primary campaign really poisonous and win the nomination and have everybody, you know, have everybody hate him in some way. I think what what I got wrong and didn't anticipate was that there was this sort of third path, which is that he hasn't adapted himself to the ideological contours of his party, really. He's made some adaptations, but they haven't been a big part of his thing. But he also hasn't, I think, really run a kind of ideologically centrist campaign. Instead, he's just sort of – he's run as a transactionalist. He's basically run saying, shouldn't we just have a politician in charge who likes to make deals and can get along with Republicans and he's sort of drained, I feel like, the ideological content out of his – even though he's getting moderate support, he's not running a sort of moderate campaign. He's running a kind of drained out, Trump is bad, remember the good old days, vote for me campaign. And the voters, you know, enough voters really like it that it's, I think, wor working um, as well as can be expected to work. And I, I feel like I committed in part the characteristic pundit's fallacy of – Assuming that lots of voters are eager for the ideological battles that newspaper columnists are always interested in and in fact, Biden's appeal isn't sort of – it is that he's a moderate but it's not about the policy arguments that he's making or not making. It's about sort of an idea of how you do politics that he represents I think which is different. Uh, I agree with you. We overstate how much – policy matters. I'm trying to get better at that. Um, but it's possible that it's it's not even well he represents some version of politics that people like. It's possible it's just he's sort of a familiar guy um, and no one else has caught fire. Biden is such an unusual candidate. I mean, the combination of his strengths and weaknesses is it feels like nothing that we've seen before. We've seen people who on paper look like good candidates and then run campaigns that are weak and they get no support. But the, the combination of Biden's strengths and weaknesses is just feels to me really different. Um, so I guess I'm not totally surprised that two of us chose that as our mea culpas. Michelle, what did you get wrong in 2019? I started this year feeling pretty good. Politically, um, you know, you had this new class of Democrats being sworn in. Some of them, a lot of them were really inspiring. You know, it was the most, it was young, multiracial, a lot of women. 
And you just look at what's happened, um, you know, some some specifically, you look at what's happened to Katie Hill, driven out of Congress by revenge porn. You know, you look at what's happened with Ilhan Omar sort of making herself toxic in ways that I think she bears some responsibility for, but not total responsibility. And I thought that they would be able to do a lot more to, to check Donald Trump. Um, I just feel like the Democrats, you know, they were elected by this huge wave of anti-Trump energy. They've decided that they need to show, especially in swing districts, that they're willing to work with Trump where they can. And what I think that that's done is it's helped to normalize him. They've given him victories on things that I really don't understand. And when I talk to Democratic strategists, they'll say, well, we've been able to extract all these gains on policy. But it just looks to me, at least, like like Trump is just rolling them. There are so many things that I think, in general, they should be willing to grind things to a halt to save the last remnants of this democracy. Um, instead, it just I feel like the Democrats are in some ways completely leaderless. Again, I just I I thought I was a pretty pessimistic person um, and I just didn't foresee it getting this bad. But can I I mean, not that I'm going to talk you out of despair, but the democracy grief, I mean, I I feel like the problem you're describing the dilemma that the Democrats have that you're describing, that's, that is, that's a democratic dilemma, right? The Democrats succeeded in winning the House by running campaigns that drew on strong anti-Trump energy, but also in a lot of states and districts, you know, ran as people ran as moderate deal makers. And the place where the Democrats have ended up under Pelosi is a place of when Trump does something public and egregious, we will quickly impeach him and at the same time, if he wants to do a trade deal that unions like, we'll do that too. And that's I think a very – it's a very – it's very responsive to small d democratic politics, right? It's, it's sort of the combination of – you know, there's a lot of voters who voted for Democrats because they wanted Trump restrained and the Democratic House as it exists is a restraint on him. There's a, you know, it, it really is. No, but is. What, I mean, what I mean, but what I mean by democracy grief is that they are helping to enable his reelection. If he is reelected, I think that democracy does not survive. I fervently hope, maybe this is just me grasping for optimism, but I fervently hope, Michelle, that you will one day look back on that prediction and and say that it was what you got wrong one year. And I'm sure you agree. You also of hope course. that you look back and feel that way. Yeah, inshallah. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. As a global leader in experiential education, 
Drexel University encourages students to both gain knowledge and find new ways to turn that knowledge into action. Drexel is proud to be one of 39 private institutions in the nation to achieve recognition by the Carnegie Classification of Institutions of Higher Education as an R1 research institution, affirming this Philadelphia University's commitment to discovery and innovation. Experience what education can be at drexel.edu. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short. That's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. The year 2020 is going to bring a lot of change. New decade, new presidential election, and of course, new New Year's resolutions. We asked you to share your political resolutions for the new year. Here are a few of our favorites. My name is Christian, and I'm from Minnesota. I just started working my first job out of college for a state Senate campaign. And my goal is to get as many of my friends, neighbors, and family paying attention to their local, state, and down-ballot races as we approach 2020, and that if we can sort of give more attention to those, we can actually get a lot done. So that's my resolution. Um, hi, my name is Lisa Culver. I live in Arlington, Virginia. Um, I'm trying to go zero waste using kind of the popular term and looking at basically everything I do and seeing how I can make it um, not wasteful, reduce what I what I buy and why I buy it um, so that I'm not just recycling. Hi, this is Chuck Dink. My New Year's resolution is to work as a field enumerator for the 2020 census. Two things have become apparent lately. First, that we must count all Americans in all our glorious diversity. Second, that the nuts and bolts work of democratic government is partly done by conscientious workers whose service is largely unsung and ultimately nonpartisan. Hi, my name is Lauren. I'm from Huntington Beach, California, and my New Year's resolution is to have more conversations or, I guess, even arguments. I am a politics major, and I feel decently informed, but I'm too scared to have those conversations, um, especially with how divisive things are. So I'm a bit of a Michelle, but I think I need to get to know some more Rosses. Well, first of all, I love Lauren's idea that more of our listeners need their own Rosses. <laughs> I, I I love that idea as well. I mean, I, I think mostly that all of our callers put me at least to shame because, you know, my my own New Year's resolution was going to be, you know, to read more about some particular area, um, whereas they're out there organizing, practicing politics, counting Americans, and imposing an admirable spiritual discipline on their shopping habits. So I think they're all in better shape than I'm likely to be in six months. I realize neither of you probably want to criticize any of our wonderful listeners, <laughs> wonderful resolutions, but I, I was interested in, in your thoughts about what do you each think about this difference between personal behavior, right, the idea of changing your own behavior in terms of the climate, versus political organizing, trying to get involved in ways to affect policy. Michelle, how do you think about the sort of difference between those two? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I am on the side of 
political organizing. You know, that said, that caller is probably doing more for the planet than I am. And I also think that having people change their own behavior can can inspire them to get involved politically in a way that uh, might actually be more intense. If people feel like they're both doing something and getting involved, I feel like that can be uh, uh, much more uh, uh, much more lasting than than political dabbling. Yeah, because it makes it sort of part of your identity. Well, and also, you know, you, you can't stop climate change, but you can make yourself a better person. There's a reason that most of the great religious traditions of the world have counseled asceticism, detachment from possessions, and a life lived, you know, more in harmony with creation. And so, I, I mean, I, I think I have a deep and profound disagreement with the Greta Thunberg approach to climate change, which I think is much more sort of austere and utopian than either of yours. Um, and I think is sort of as a policy matter is wrongheaded. I think you're never going to get public policy to sort of impose lower standards of living on an unwilling democratic populace. But if you find Greta inspiring at a personal level, changing your life to, <laughs> to reflect that inspiration, I think is a is a good thing to do. And and it's the only way to prove me wrong, right? You, you need to show, you need to model that this change is possible at some scale before anyone could imagine having governments and democratic societies impose it. Well, since we asked our listeners to call in with their resolutions, I think it's only fair that we offer ours. And I'm going to go first because, Ross, you just mentioned asceticism and, and changes that are inspired by religion, and mine falls into both of those categories. I've written about this a little bit, as people who subscribe to my newsletter may know, but um, th this idea of a tech Shabbat has caught on, which is you pick 24 hours um, over the course of a weekend and you decide you're not going to use um, – however you define it, you're not going to use technology. So for virtually everyone, that means putting away their phones, putting away their laptops and tablets. Some people include television. Um, I don't. I still watch sports with my family. Um, but I've now done it I think four times. Basically, my wife and I have decided that uh, unless there's a Saturday that we absolutely absolutely cannot do it. Um, we're going to have a tech Shabbat, which means on Friday night, uh, we turn off our phones and we don't turn them back on again until Sunday morning. And I have to say, I've I've loved it. Um, it, it introduces some hassles, um, but I've come to look forward to it. It means that I read more books and spend less time just doing useless stuff on the internet. Um, and um, I've heard from a lot of readers. Uh, and I was just really struck by not just how many people are, seem to be doing this, because I'm sure the overall numbers are not huge, but the people who do do it, how much they like doing it. So there you go, Ross. Um, all this time uh, being on this podcast, podcast with you has made me in part into more of an ascetic. That's wonderful, David. I'm glad I've had that kind of influence on you. I have no illusions about my own um, likely capacity to add ascetic disciplines to our life in the coming year uh, because as you two guys know, but our listeners probably do not, we're expecting our fourth child in a few months. Um, so, well, that's aesthetic which discipline. Is, it, right, exactly. It is imposing <laughs> an aesthetic discipline, um, a, a ruthless and brutal one. But it will not it, – it's a time when adding other aesthetic disciplines seems very unlikely. So as I said, I have a more boring resolution, which as, as a columnist, I want to read more and follow more politics in the global south and maybe particularly in – Latin America, 
and Sub-Saharan Africa. I write a lot about the likely influence of Africa on the European continent and I think I have an insufficient grounding in what's actually happening on the ground in Africa and I've been struck in political debates in political stories recently from Bolsonaro in Brazil, the recent turbulence in Bolivia, how many similarities there are between U.S. politics and Latin American politics and how much people in our elite, um, myself included, spend so much time drawing analogies and comparisons to Europe and much less time drawing analogies and comparisons to Latin America. So my ambition at the very least is to write a few columns drawing some analogies southward rather than eastward across the Atlantic in the next year. It's funny. I've been thinking that I need to figure out a pretext for a trip, um, you know, I don't know exactly where, but just because, you know, being in a lot of countries there with all of their problems, um, you know, which are many, um, it often cheers me up just because it's a place where things are in many of these countries, you know, countries I've spent a lot of time in, um, Ethiopia in particular, you know, for all their challenges, it's a place where things are getting better instead of worse. And that is heartening. Michelle, what's your resolution? So, well, I guess I have two. I mean, one is similar to yours. I don't think I could actually pull off a tech Shabbat, but... You could. I am resolved. Well, maybe I could. But, you know, it's like one of those things that just has to kind of click into place before you feel like you're really ready to do it, like, you know, quitting smoking or something. Um, But I am resolving to start carrying around novels with me because I just feel like in all of the sort of interstitial time in my life, I end up either on Twitter or, um, you know, reading the news and marinating in politics all of the time. And so I just I have to start reading more novels, which I find incredibly therapeutic. And also, I'm really hoping, you know, kind of following on what we said before, to spend more time out of the country. Um, Just because I do, you know, Trump sucks up so much of our um, psychic energy that we end up ignoring so much of what is going on in the world. I mean, you know, it's when I think about how much I used to follow international politics compared to now, it's really pretty shameful. And I would like to turn that around. And I think it would be a relief, again, to think about something else besides, you know, the decline of my own country. I feel like we've sort of developed a unified argument 2020 resolution combining the listeners with (laughs) us, which is go to a monastery without internet service in Ethiopia. Well, no, that's only half of it, right? So it's it, that's our part. We all, all of ours are versions of of how do we be a little bit less obsessed with the politics of the moment. But then you add in the listeners, and it's um, figure out a way to get civically engaged with your country, and also figure out a way to to maybe spend some more time doing things that aren't in any way related to the big political story of the day, uh, and and both are really worthwhile. So that's the unified argument advice for the year twenty twenty. Now it's time for our weekly recommendation, when in keeping with the theme of today's show, we make a suggestion that is meant to take your mind off of the news of the day. Michelle, it's your turn this week. What do you have for us? So this isn't going to be too surprising, 
but I'm going to recommend HBO's Watchmen. Without giving away too much of the plot, it's based on the famous and incredibly dark graphic novel that was the first one to sort of subvert the superhero genre. So the creator of Watchmen is Damon Lindelof. Um, You know, so if you've ever seen, like, Lost, there's all of these kind of unsatisfying things that aren't resolved and all sorts of mysteries that are introduced but don't go anywhere and it's full of red herrings. And the nine episodes of Watchmen are like the anti-Lost in that at first you kind of can't figure out how all of these things fit together. It begins with the Tulsa race riots, then circles forward to an alternative version of America in which Nixon stayed in power for a very long time, and we won the war in Vietnam, and it became the 51st state. It's an interesting dystopia because it's actually a dystopia ruled by, in some sense, by liberals. Um, You know, Robert Redford is president, and there's a, um, a lot of oppression needed to keep down this kind of white supremacist insurgency. But what is, again, there's all of these different pieces. And ultimately, without giving anything away, it comes together with this kind of puzzle box clarity, right, in which suddenly you see how it all fits. And it's just incredibly satisfying. That's a hard, you've given me the hard sell here, Michelle, because I I had vowed <laughs> never, never to enter another Damon Lindelof production again. Why? Because I, well, I, you know, David, I'm I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I kind of overcommitted to Lost. I got a little bit too into it in seasons one and two. It's not something mm. I've, I'm proud of. You know, I was looking at the screen grabs of the hieroglyphs on the walls of the island and trying to figure out what it meant. And I kept the faith with Lost longer than a lot of people did when other people were saying, oh, these guys don't have a plan. They're just making it up as they go along. I was like, no, I think it, I think it's going to fit together. And – it didn't. It was a travesty. And Lindelof went on to make The Leftovers for HBO, which I'm told is very good. But every time I read reviews that said something like, this show, you know, it shows that the most important thing is the mystery and not the resolution. I was like, <laughs> go to hell. OK? That, that's – I want a resolution. So I guess if there's a resolution here, maybe I will have to – reconsider my powerful hatred. <laughs> my question, Michelle, is do you want a second season? Because I've read some people saying that the the sort of that quality you described, the sense that this season was sort of perfect in the end makes people want the show to just sort of leave it there. You know, I'm a little torn because I, I think that that is true. And I also think that the precise satisfaction of the conclusion makes you want to see where that character goes next, um, you know. So it might be artistically wise for them to leave it alone, but if there's another season, I will definitely be watching it. Michelle, what's the recommendation? Watchmen on HBO. Thank you. Before we sign off, we wanted to say thank you and goodbye to our excellent longtime producer, Kristen Schwab. She is moving on to a job as a reporter for Marketplace. Congratulations, Kristen, and thank you for making us all sound smarter and more succinct than we really are. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Kristen. And we'll be listening. 
That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324 if you have thoughts or ideas. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by Kristen Schwab and Maddie Foley for Transmitter Media and edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrook. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We're taking a break next week. Until then, Happy New Year from everyone at The Argument, and we will be back on January 9th. I was young, single, early 20s, and I was watching too much Lost. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.